I know death is not something that we like to think about or even talk about a lot. Even at a funeral, we talk about the person's life, but generally not how they died. So when we get to this last chapter of 1 Samuel, which is all about Saul's death, it's no surprise that it's the shortest chapter in the book. I reckon it's almost like the author of 1 Samuel doesn't want to write this chapter. It's miserable. It's a tragedy. It almost brings shame on God that his king would die so terribly. And you probably noticed that as Jan uh, read it for us earlier. It's a a chapter that we'd prefer not to read, I think. But we need to know what happens in this last chapter of 1 Samuel because this chapter is here to help us understand Jesus better. What we're going to see is while Saul's death is something to be mourned over, and that's how the chapter ends, seven days of fasting and mourning, Jesus' death is something that we rejoice over. And we're going to compare the death of Saul with the death of Jesus and think a little bit about why that is. Now, to remind us where chapter 31 is and what's happening in this last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, let's flip back and look at 1 Samuel chapter 28. Just flip back a few pages to 1 Samuel 28. It's actually a few weeks ago that we were in 1 Samuel 28. There's a map. And in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 28... It said there, three weeks ago when we looked at this, verse 4, 1 Samuel 28, the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem. Now on the map, that is way, way up there. Then it says, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa, which is there. Now three weeks ago, as we read this chapter, Saul was looking down across the valley at the Philistines and he panicked. He did not like how things were turning out, even though this is exactly what God said would happen because he had rejected God. And so he went and saw the medium, the witch at Endor, as if somehow that might change his fate. And do you remember from three weeks ago when Saul um, saw Samuel appear what Samuel said to Saul. You can read it in chapter 28, verse 19 there. This is what Samuel said to Saul. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. That is dead. Tomorrow. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. So the death of Saul, which we just had read and we're going to look at now, it's not an accident. It's not just that the Philistines had a stronger army. No, this is the judgment of God. This is the defeat that God promised would happen because the nation of Israel rejected him. Now, we left three weeks ago with that prophecy hanging in the air that Saul would die tomorrow. We've taken three weeks to get to chapter 21, but chapter, sorry, 31, but chapter 31 is the very next day. We are now at tomorrow. If you remember the last two weeks, we've gone back in time and we've been looking at what's been happening down at Ziklag with David, but we are now back up the north. It's the very next day after the witch of Endor. And in chapter 31, verse 1, we arrive at the battle back up north. But 
the battle's almost over by the time it starts getting described, verse 1. It's exactly what Samuel said would happen, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites, sorry, chapter 31, verse 1, this is in case you're not sure, chapter 31, verse 1. The Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. That's a painful story to tell, and I think that's why the writer tells us with as few words as he can. The Israelites fled before them. Six words. And many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. That's the defeat of Israel. Next we read about Jonathan's death. It is just as short. Now this is surprising because think about who Jonathan was. He is the heir to Saul's throne. He's Saul's oldest son. He was David's best friend. Jonathan was the one who's always been obeying the Lord in 1 Samuel and his death here, it's described in just one verse. It could not be any shorter. Verse 2. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. There it is, the second part of Samuel's prophecy come true. Israel's defeated. Saul's sons are dead. The only thing left is the death of Saul himself, and we read about that in verse 3. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armour-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armour-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Okay, the first suicide in the Bible, apart from uh, when Samson pushed the pillars and killed the Philistines. When the armour-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armour-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Now, we're not told a lot about Saul's death, but we're just told enough that we get the feeling of complete despair. Saul had nowhere to go, and in the end, he took his own life. And that's the end of Saul. The rest of the chapter describes what happens after the battle, the the effects of this loss. And it's really just rubbing it in how sad this is. So verse 7 we find out that the Israelites who live around this area, they are now driven out of their homes. Verse 7. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan, so we're talking, in other words, to the right of that river right up there. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. Now, that's the exact opposite of what happened last week. Last week, down south, when God gave David victory over the Amalekites, David shared his spoils with everyone in all the surrounding towns. Here, the surrounding towns have lost. The Israelites are driven out of them because of Saul's defeat. It gets worse, verse 8, because this whole disaster brings disgrace on God. I mean, what kind of a God can't even protect his own people? What kind of a God lets his king be killed? 
At least that's how the Philistines are thinking. They think they have not just defeated the Israelites, they've defeated the Israelites' God because their God is stronger. Verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armour and they sent messages throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armour in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall on Beth Shean. See, this is, this is a disgrace for Saul, but it is more than that. It is a complete mockery of Israel's God. In 1 Chronicles 10, which is describing this exact same event, we find out that Saul's head is put into the temple of Dagon. So Saul's armour is put into the temple of the Ashtoreths. Uh, thank you, God, for our victory over Saul. His head is put in the temple of Dagon. Thank you, Dagon. And his body is hung on a wall for people to laugh at. And then they send messengers throughout the land proclaiming the good news of their victory. Now, have a look there in verse 9. I want you to notice the word the writer uses here to describe proclaim the good news. That's where we get our word gospel from. In other words, follow along as I read verse 9, but it could be translated like this. Verse 9, they cut off his head and stripped off his armour and they sent messages throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the gospel in the temple of their idols and among their people. Now, we might think of the word gospel as a religious word, you know, gospel music or the gospel about Jesus, a church kind of word, but the gospel is simply the announcement of victory, military victory. The Philistines celebrate their victory by cutting off Saul's head and proclaiming the gospel, the, the good news of their victory in the temples of their idols. Well, it might be good news for the Philistines, it might be a great gospel for them, but it's not good news for Israel, is it? It is terrible news. And the last way that the tragedy of this chapter is seen is that it ends with some men from Jabesh-Gilead coming and rescuing Saul's body. But even this has a bit of a sad tone to it. Verse 11. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. And they mourned for seven days. Now, that's a nice thing for the men of Jabesh Gilead to do. It's nice that there was someone who still loved Saul. But I think even this has a bad taste to it because it's a reminder for us of what Saul could have been, but he wasn't. Because the reason these men from Jabesh Gilead are helping Saul, why are they helping him? It's because back in chapter 11, Saul rescued them. It was probably the best moment of Saul's life. It's when he received the Spirit of God, he went and rescued these men, and after that rescue, God gave Saul a second chance. God said to Saul back then, if you obey me, I will bless you. Saul could have done that, but he didn't. 
He didn't obey God. Seven days later, he disobeyed God and God said, I'll remove the kingship from you. So here, right at the end of the book, the men from Jabesh Gilead rescuing Saul, it's a beautiful thing, but I think it's also a reminder that things could have been different. There was some good in Saul. If only he had obeyed and listened to God. But he didn't. And so now Saul is dead. His sons are dead. Israel are defeated. God is being laughed at. The Philistines are celebrating their victory and proclaiming the gospel. And it all could have been avoided if only they had listened to God. It's not a happy ending. And I'm sorry, it's the end. Hollywood loves putting out movies with happy endings. That's because only 2% of people prefer a movie with a sad ending. Hand up. Are you, the, are you one of the 2% who prefers a movie with a sad ending? Is there anyone here? One, two, three. Yeah, that's about 2%. If someone happens to write a movie with a bad ending, what happens quite often is when the movie gets made and they pilot the movie to a group of viewers, which they do, The bad ending doesn't poll well. People don't like it. And more often than not, when that happens, they change the ending. They release the movie with a good ending. And then if you're very astute, you can notice that if you hire it on the DVD, you can look at the alternate ending. Okay, The ending that they wanted, which was bad, but they were too scared to put in, so they, they put the good one. Now, I reckon if Hollywood made a movie of one Samuel, they'd change the ending. This ending would not poll well. It's not the ending we want. It's an awful ending. It's worse than that, though. I don't think it's the ending that we are set up to expect. Look, I know it's a long time since we started 1 Samuel. It was way back in April last year that we started 1 Samuel. But Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel opened with God making some promises to his people, and he promised a great reversal In 1 Samuel 1 and 2, when Samuel was first born, God promised that he would fix Israel's sin. He promised to turn them back to him, and he promised that he'd do that through a king. I've, I've got something just to refresh our memories on it here. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. God said, Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So that's saying that it is God's enemies who will be shattered and his king will win. Well, that's what we're expecting. What's happened to that promise? Because Saul was God's king, wasn't he? Where was Saul's strength? They just chopped off his head and they've carried his head around the country. What's going on there? What's going on, of course, is that Saul is God's king, but he's not this king. He's not the king that was promised in 1 Samuel 2. If you remember, Saul was the king the people chose because they wanted to be like the other nations back in chapter 8. But even back then, God had a different king in mind, a better king. God had in mind a king that would bring about victory that king wasn't Saul 
That king wasn't even David, the next king. It was, of course, Jesus. And we've seen that through 1 Samuel, haven't we? What's interesting about today's passage, though, I think, is how different Jesus' death is to Saul's death. Now, in one sense, Jesus' death is similar to Saul's death. It looks like a disgrace. Looks like a defeat. God's king hanging on a bloodied cross. Not committing suicide, but executed like a criminal. It looked like the rulers had their victory over Jesus. But there's more going on, isn't there? I mean, we start to get hints of it in the way the writers describe Jesus' death. The writer of 1 Samuel doesn't want to talk about Saul's death. It's the shortest chapter in the book. When you get to the Gospels, the writers go out of their way to talk about Jesus' death. They spend chapters and chapters and chapters talking about Jesus' death. In fact, they spend more time talking about Jesus' death than any other event in his life. Why would they do that? It gets even more surprising because after Jesus' death, a gospel goes out. But it's not the Romans who are spreading the news about Jesus' death. It's not the Romans who are spreading the gospel of their victory over Jesus. It's not even the Jews who are spreading the good news about their victory over Jesus. No, it's his own followers. Now, you would expect that when Jesus is killed, the good news, the, the announcements of victory, would be spread by Jesus' enemies, like it was for Saul. Now, we've won. Jesus is dead. Here's his body. But there was no body. He rose from the dead. And so it's Jesus' disciples who travel around the world spreading the good news, the gospel, the message of Jesus' victory. I mean, we see that all over the New Testament. We see it in Romans 1.16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, the message about Jesus' death and resurrection, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's interesting that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it, because at first glance, the death of Jesus looks like it could be something to be ashamed of. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that is where Jesus' death is so different to Saul's. Because Jesus' death wasn't his defeat, it was his victory. When Jesus died, he defeated Satan. When Jesus died, he defeated sin. When Jesus died and rose again, he even defeated death itself. Because we know, don't we, Jesus didn't die under the judgment of God for his own sin like Saul did. No, Jesus was perfect. And he died under the judgment of God for our sin. When he died on the cross, he took away the sin of his people. And if our sin is gone, I mean completely gone, 
then Satan has no hold over us anymore. There's no reason to be guilty. It is completely gone. We can be forgiven by God. We can have a fresh start. It doesn't get any better than that. Jesus' death was his victory. That's our good news, isn't it? That's the gospel we proclaim. I've told this story before, but it's a good one, so I'm going to tell it again. Fitz Chrysler was a famous violinist. On one of his trips, he heard a violin being played, and this is how he described it. I heard a voice, liquid, pure, penetrating, whose divine sweetness pierced my soul as a knife with the anguish of longing. Okay, that's, that's a violin he was listening to. It must have been a good one. Once Fitz Chrysler heard this violin, he just had to have it. But he didn't have enough money at the time to buy it. So he went away, he saved up, and by the time he went back, the violin had been bought by a collector. So Chrysler got the name of the new owner, he went and visited him, and he offered to buy the violin. But the collector said the violin was the best one in his collection. There was no way he wanted to part with it. Chrysler was pretty disappointed. Before he left, he just asked if he could play the violin just once. You know, then it could go back into the collection. He played it. He played it beautifully. It sounded amazing. And the owner, the collector, when he heard it, he said, I have no right to keep this violin to myself. Take it, Mr Chrysler. It belongs to you. Go out into the world and let it be heard. Go out into the world and let it be heard. We have something much more valuable than a violin. We have the gospel. The good news about the victory of Jesus. That's not something that should be sitting on our bookshelves. That's not something that should be in a museum. That's not something we should keep to ourselves at church. Something this good needs to be taken into the world. Let's pray. Father, as the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Father, help us never to be ashamed of the gospel. It can sound so foolish and it can look so weak that your son would die on a cross. But Father, thank you that you have given us eyes to see by your spirit that that is your power. That through Jesus' death we can be forgiven. Father, thank you that you've changed us. And Father, help us not to keep this good news to ourselves. Help us to see it for what it is that we might want to share it with the world. Amen.